Welcome to the interview series, the first podcast by ICMP, the Institute of Contemporary Music Performance in London. I'm back with a second season of interviews, this time focusing on the people that made ICMP a pioneer when it comes to music higher education in the UK, our tutors. Audrey Riley is a composer, arranger and cello player with over 35 years of experience within the music industry. Just by looking her up on Google, you'll soon find out how long and great her CV is. The list of tracks and records she's credited onto is simply never-ending. From the Style Council to New Order, The Smiths, Muse, Coldplay, Foo Fighters, The Smashing Pumpkins, and many, many more. She's worked on a wide variety of projects across the board. I asked her to tell me what was it like to give birth to some of those classic tracks and also to share some anecdotes from those studio days. She also delved into more philosophical sides of music, both as a creative and curious person, and as a listener and lover of music in its many forms. Audrey also shared her love for teaching, especially at ICMP, and told me how this job allows her to challenge her beliefs when it comes to music and, of course, life. Thanks for tuning in. This is one of the best episodes to date, so I'm excited you're about to listen to my chat with Audrey. If you like the interview series, please follow the podcast, subscribe and leave a review. It really matters to us. If you're sharing this on social media, also don't forget to tag us at ICMP London. Let us know what you think. Hello, Audrey. How are you? Hello, Laura. I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks for being with me today. Thanks for being a guest. It's a pleasure. I was really looking forward to this a lot. I cannot oh. wait. <laughs> oh, wow always good to chat to you um how's life looking for you now how is it how is it going it's great actually well within the context within the current context um uh yeah things are things are fine the sun's out um bits of work are coming back in got some sessions and arrangements lined up for august um, and gigs in the diary, and I'm just holding my breath to uh, make sure that they go ahead. And I've yeah. just finished my doctorate, um, so I'm just uh, fixing that up a little bit. A few spelling mistakes, you know. Uh, got <laughs> <fix those. laughs> and um, I've got some other writing I'm doing, a chapter for a book. And um, yeah, everything is within the context. Everything is fine. Thank okay. you, Laura. <laughs> right so I would like to start by asking you what is the very first musical memory that you have if you think of like you as a kid and music what comes to mind mm, I've got several of course <laughs> naughty me um my very first musical memory um would be of the of the upright piano that we had in our house because both my mum and dad loved to play the piano as amateur musicians, you know, that kind of busking through Liszt and Chopin and Mozart and enjoying the, un, un, the revealing of the pieces more than the, <laughs> the performance. And um, I would sit on the floor next to the piano and put my hands up so that they could just about bang the keys. And I loved the sound of this piano. Uh, so that was my, my favorite game. And I, I did this for a long time until eventually I was given piano lessons. And um, um, when my father died, um, I, I, I uh, offered to take the piano. 
and uh, had it restored. And so my very first concept of sound is with me in my studio. And I can always go back to that, that place. Yeah. But another very, very strong early memory of sound is the very first time, aged eight or nine, something like that, I um, took my little borrowed cello along to the Leicester School's Youth Orchestra Saturday morning meeting for the very small junior person's orchestra and sat right at the back of a cello section of must have been about 16 little cellists and sat in the middle of this huge symphony orchestra while they played a symphony and I tried to keep up and I could not believe this noise around my ears. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. It probably said it awful from the outside, but it was so exciting <laughs> to me. <laughs> Graduated to being able to play the occasional bar every now and again. <laughs> so, yeah, those are my earliest memories, I think. Very important ones. <laughs> and um, so just, just moving on to your career. So I'm not going to introduce you, but there's so much to say, right? You've done and you still do a lot of stuff within the industry, of course, from being an educator to being a cello player to being an arranger and a conductor and an MD. And your your credit list is like so long, like it's amazing. Hey, I've been really lucky, Laura. Still, you know, you've worked with the likes of, I don't know, from the Style Council to Swerve Driver to Shed 7 to New Order to Nick Cave to Foo Fighters, Blur, like the list goes on and on and on. So I'm gonna just drop some names and things mm-hmm. that you've worked on and you can tell me how was it for you like in terms of like work and also if you have any stories or anecdotes that you're willing to share because I think it's always cool to do that I think it kind of makes sense to start from the very first paid session that you did which was with the Smiths yeah right? right just dropping yeah. a random name so yeah what how was that and how was it to like work with bands in the 80s like you know looking back terribly exciting yeah it was terribly exciting Laura and also hugely liberating for me actually because um I'd grown up in orchestras and I'd gone to the Guildhall where everything had gone well and so on but I just happened to leave the Guildhall in a a huge, 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 awful recession. Unemployment figures shot right up. And this idea that I was going to walk out of the Guildhall and into a job in an orchestra, that really didn't work quite like that. And, you know, so you just you just move around and you meet people and you make friends and other opportunities and situations come up and you, you're open-minded and curious. I'm curious, you see. I'm very curious. I get that from my dad. I always uh, want to know how things work and, and, and why. And, um, and I was really curious about situations that were being offered to me. Um, um, this is a long anecdote, isn't it? But I need to explain how I walked out of the Guildhall and then apparently I'm walking into a studio with the Smiths, the next thing. It's not quite that simple. So um, um, I met a fantastically talented um, uh, woman of my own age, uh, just directly out of Guildhall, called Virginia Astley. And I joined her band for three years and we had fun. Um, she was a flautist, she is a flautist, um, and her music's really highly thought of. And we, um, I learned to improvise using my cello 
and to do something away from reading music by playing with Virginia, which I did for three years, and it was a really fantastic time, really exciting, broke, hungry, <laughs> struggling, my parents worrying about me, still looking for those orchestral editions which just weren't appearing. And through doing these lovely, beautiful, creative concerts with Virginia, where we where we did things like played in a cinema in Hampstead shortly before they showed a, an art film, we uh, we did a concert in a Victorian swimming pool somewhere in West London. Uh, <laughs> these were very exciting times. In doing that, somebody sees you play, and and the next thing you know, you've you've got a phone call because they enjoyed your playing, and they can see that you're curious and creative. So the phone call was from Jeff Travis of Rough Trade and the Smiths hadn't been signed at that point. They were in a studio in Wapping making um, the first album with Troy Tate and Jeff said, I know you through Virginia, um, I've got a band in the studio, Elephant Studios down in Wapping, they need a channel on this track, I'll come and pick you up in my van and I'll give you 30 quid in cash. Do you feel like it? Well, £30 in 1980, what was this? Four, five? That was quite a lot of money. Yes, please, I'll do that. Never been in a recording studio before. So I I went to the studio and I met the Smiths and they were delightful and the track was Pretty Girls Make Graves. And I and I I, I played on it. And they said, can you just come up with something? And I noodled around on my cello and heard lines in my head, played them. It worked. That was it. And then Jeff took me home to my flat in his van and gave me my 30 quid. <laughs> so there you go. Simple, right? Simple, simple. <laughs> and it was the Smiths. <laughs> and it was the Smiths. And then, of course, a bit later, it, it, it transpired that they weren't going to use the Troy Tate version. They were going to redo the album. And I was really, oh, I was so sad because I, I was really proud of this little track and uh, my, my, my little contribution to it and um, uh, Jeff said he was really sorry uh, but a bit later to uh, uh, he, he put the, he put the track on a b-side of one of the Smith singles and I was really pleased to see it come out which single oh now you've got me because I am really <laughs> bad with names Laura um, I'm really bad it's a contextual thing. I can tell you the name of the track if I look at the record cover, but not because of the. Words. No, it's okay. I'll look it up. It's something for me to look up, just because I because uh, I want to know. It's just me now. Wearing the nineteen sixties hat on it. That's the only way I can remember. It. Right. Okay. Um, so I mean, that was a pretty cool start. Um, and then, I mean, of course, I'm gonna jump to like later on because the list is would be too long otherwise, but. The second thing that I would like to talk about, the second piece of music actually, is probably one of my favorites of all times. It's something that I never get tired of listening to. It's something that gives me uh, shivers down my spine every time. So I need to know about this. And that's Tonight Tonight by the Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. How was it? Well, I mean, what an amazing track, don't you agree? I know I'm biased because I love them and, and that's it. But, you know, that's that's what it is. You know, I'm a fan, so it worked for me. So come on, tell me, come on, is this is me interviewing you now. So what is the most exciting thing about the track for you? The way, literally, just the, just the melody, the way that it, that it develops and goes back and, and keeps repeating like this 
I don't know, I get into this like vertigo of emotions. It's just, um, it, it's like, I know how it, how it goes. I know what it's like, but it gets me every time as if I never mm. heard it before. I don't know how to explain it. It's, it's like, I think when I was a kid and I first listened to this, because of course I was really young when it came out, it would put me in this sort of like anxious state, but anxious state that I loved. Mm. I was somehow comfortable in. Mm. I don't know how else to say it, but it's no, the same kind of thing when I listen to it now. I need to be in the right mood for it because mm-hmm. it gets me so much. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. There's this, this is kind of contrast, isn't there, between this acceleration and, and tension in the verses, and then it just explodes and lands and goes into a different a halftime pulse in the choruses, which makes yeah. you feel okay again. <laughs> absolutely absolutely so yeah yeah it's all about anticipation uh, i i totally agree and emotional anticipation as well and there's this kind of hurrying business going on in the drums it's it's really um it, it's motivated it's it's accelerating um yeah. and it gets faster and faster actually it really does get faster and faster as i found when i was conducting it um but the, the, the it's not um you know, it's so difficult for us to imagine because we imagine that everything we record now is gridded against this click, which is absolutely rigid and never veers from 120 BPM. But but that isn't actually true with music. It's organic. It's alive. It breathes. Bands, when they play live, they, they speed up and slow down according to the material and what's going on. And, you know, even when you do click stuff and record it to click, if you're clever, you rec- you click the thing that's already been alive and um and and so the this pumpkins track yeah those last choruses are just getting faster and faster it's so exciting (laughs) i love it i really love it yeah and i was really really lucky again to get that one um but you see I'm, i'm curious so i don't know if it's because in conversation with people I'm just flagging up all the time that I'm interested in things and curious about things that I get asked to do things because somebody thinks it might interest me rather than, oh, let's ask Audrey because she's cool and, <laughs> you know, we like her and all the rest of it. It's, it's like, let's ask Audrey because I think she'll find this fascinating. Well, it works. So, <laughs> so I get to do some really interesting tracks. Um, it was really short notice. It was you know really like something from a film you get a call the producers i already know because i'd I'd already worked with them on the swerve driver album actually which another fabulous album and um so i got call and um can i go to chicago like now i mean it's really get your passport get in the car go and um the task was to work with billy corgan to um realize i think that's a good word and i often do this in my job actually realize an arrangement he had in mind and partly in place for the track so you're working with the artist um almost as a translator to take these ideas and these visions and this creativity and and actually as far as keyboard parts lines you know it's all there it's all there as clay and turning that into a language that you can put in front of an orchestra and that they will play straight away. 
and making sure at the same time that it works in production with the track that sonically you're not writing lines that are in the way of the guitars or you know violin parts that are going to not be heard or it is sort of it is yeah a little bit like a translation job um and i th i think if i remember with the with this particular track that that billy already had those beautiful top lines, he already had them as lead lines. So it was about setting those and coming up with appropriate orchestrations for those lines to make a complete arrangement. And then of course, um, you know, scoring out all the parts and translating that out of computer work into a language that an orchestra can get to grips with and understand. And that can be quite delicate because you're not just dealing with pitches and rhythms, but you're dealing with atmospheres and expressions and all kinds of little nuances that aren't expressed very well by notation. So you you have to work very carefully at that. And then to, I mean, conduct is the wrong word. To conduct implies that you're showing where the beat is, but an orchestra playing to a rock track don't, don't need to be shown the beat. <laughs> they can hear it for themselves. So it's it's more uh, leading and guiding towards the track um, through the navigation through it, but also the musical expression of um, uh, dynamics and uh, lots of other uh, subtleties. Um, and in, in the case of that particular track, when it was getting faster and faster at the end and accelerating, it's driving the orchestra through that, you know, with excitement. So a lot of the time, my idea of conducting is actually just facial expressions and dancing, you know. <laughs> it gets the job done. Um, oh, it did. Yeah, yeah, it, it really did. And it was terribly exciting to work with the strings of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra because they were amazing. In fact, I think, here's my anecdote, that I lied and said that I'd made a mistake in the cello and bass parts and needed to hear the cello and basses play on their own, please, so I could check it. Oh, my goodness. I would pay to hear those now. <laughs> oh, of course you lied. It makes sense to me. I just wanted to hear them on their own. <laughs> that's 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 a good anecdote, definitely. Um, okay, let me move on because I could talk about the Smashing Pumpkins all day and that track especially. So let's okay. let's move on. Right, next on my list is Moloko. Mm. The time is now. Mm. So Roshin Murphy, what a genius! Mm. And and the track is is like it's twenty one years old, mm. and I still hear it. And, and it's just, it's like so, it's still so relevant and so contemporary and so brilliant. Yeah, great band, Maloko. Mark Bryden, uh, fabulous. And the partnership he had with Rasheen. You know, you get those great partnerships sometimes, don't you? That's The sum is more than the parts. It's one of those. Um, and Rasheen, I mean, good grief. I think she's a fabulous artist, actually. Um, she's she's an actual artist. She's somebody who deals with ideas. Uh, she has she focuses her attention again on things that interest her, that she wants to communicate about. And she has no fear. You know, she she wants to express something, she will just 
find a way to do it. But as a performer as well, I mean, obviously I've watched her perform many times, either from playing behind her on stage or sitting out in the audience. Um, she's dynamite, actually. She has true charisma. Um, and that time is now single. Yeah, I can, you know, at the time, it's strange, isn't it? Because it's a session, you get the quartet, you write out the parts, you turn up to a London studio, you do the session, the session finishes, you think, hmm, that was a great track, I bet that one's going to be a hit. But it's not until a long time afterwards when you when you, you are no longer involved with it, when you, are, you have become one of the listeners who's enjoying it in another context, that you go... Oh, ow, actually, I can really see why that's a good track now. <laughs> um, but um, I think, again, Rasheen and Mark had come up with the lead line, those high violin parts, and my job was to set it and, um, you know, lead the quartet. Um, and I do remember one anecdote of Rasheen being very clear that she wanted something to land somewhere that couldn't be notated, that had to be felt. I mean, you could you could give an idea of the notation. It's going to be somewhere after this little pause, but uh, the actual particular landing of it, she'd done beautifully on the keyboard, and needed it to be in the same place. And so she, you know, I I just said, Rasheen, there isn't a way I can explain it as well as you can because you're the one who's feeling it so just stand at the window and show us where with your hands so she did she conducted us on this bit she loved it <laughs> she's really getting in there with the conducting it's great it just shows who she is actually as an artist she's fearless um and you again were acting as a sort of like translator yeah i'm playing the cello in my quartet as well um that's amazing very much. yeah yeah she's great I love that album, Hairless Toys, that she did a few years ago. So um, I've got a couple more. So the next one would be Coldplay, and yeah. especially referring to A Rush of Blood to the Head. So 2002, we're talking, it seems like yesterday. It's it's not, clearly. Uh, let's not think about this. And um, I want to know about, you know, of course, I think, pretty sure you worked on the whole record, pretty much, right? All the ones that have strings on. It's definitely all the singles that came out. So In My Place, I think it was the first one, and then God Put a Smile on Your Face, mm -hmm. and The Scientist. So they're massive tracks from the 2000s. So how was that, how was that experience? Mm, yeah, it was uh, lovely, actually. Oh, it's really nice that Chris, um, well, again, it was a fantastic uh, opportunity to get to do that album and the one that followed it. Um, and it was also great that Chris wanted to work in a really different way. Um, uh, one that, dare I say it, because they had a certain amount of success, it was possible financially to to take the time with us to really get to grip with, grips with the parts. And this isn't always possible um, when, you're, when you're working with tight budgets in the music industry, but they were able to afford to 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 have us travel up to Liverpool on you know several occasions uh, starting with me going up there to talk to Chris 
about uh, the arrangements, to listen to monitor mixes, to listen to what he wanted, uh, backwards and forwards with meetings and trying out various ideas in computer realizations. Um, and then finally getting the strings, a small group of strings, just eight of us, and saying this is going to be the group that does the whole record. And we're going to do it as a series of workshops because um, I think I think Chris is a very curious person as well. For him, it wasn't enough to uh, be, um, uh, what's the word, to, 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 to hand it over to me and not understand what I was doing. He wanted to know what I was doing, so, <laughs> which is great. Um, Matt Bellamy is like that as well, actually. Um, um, so uh, so we, we had extended sessions in which we really explored the parts as workshops in a, in a really creative way and if there were changes that were wanted then we would talk about how they'd be you know how they could be tried out we'd demonstrate things Chris would make up his mind whether he like this or like that so there were sort of set parts but those parts were uh, workshopped during the album and we worked like that uh, a little bit on um, the following album and this was a really great process because it meant that by the time we came to um, do the finished recordings um, uh, they were they they had um, they'd grown on us, and they'd grown out of our playing. They were ours, you know. We were we were joined to them, um, and it had been this, a particular group that had grown close while doing it. So, all in all, it was a really lovely way to work, in which my role as translator and arranger was still as needed as much as possible. But it was possible for the band to be more involved in the process um, and for the players to really own the parts and for it not to be as quick as it normally has to be. You see, that's the problem. Normally you're working to really tight budgets and you've got three hours in the studio and you've got to get ten tracks done and uh, there isn't time to do much more than agree it all in advance and just, you know, record it. Don't change anything, record it. That's not a great way to work. And um, actually that, that way of working with Coldplay helped much more back to the way um, I would have worked in the very early 80s when I first got into sessions, which is you'd go to the studio and you might say you were going to be there for three hours or six hours, but you'd work creatively with the artist to, to come up with the material. And um, yeah, it was great. Sorry, I went on again. I'm so... <laughs> I'm fascinated, so... Keep going. <laughs> no, it's great. It was good and we played football, or rather, some people played football. I think I was too shy. <laughs> okay, and then um, the last one that I have on my list, just realised is basically all men, apart from Rasheen. But anyway, it's uh, the Foo Fighters. Yeah. I have okay. to ask, because, I mean, Dave is, you know, yeah. the best and um yeah. <laughs> lovely guy really and uh, yeah i just want to know how was it like to work with him and the guys and of course um i mean there's a one track that i can think of especially it's the pretender but there are others as well so yeah how was it it was great i mean first of all again really lucky that that fell into my lap and that came most of my work comes through having really good working relationships with producers and for at least two decades maybe longer for a long 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 time um almost from when i began my arranging career i was part of gil norton's production team uh, gil norton very famous producer he's done tons of bands food vitus pixies 
just loads of people and I've done many, many, many albums with him. Um, so he was doing the Free Fighters record and he wanted me because he has worked with me for decades and he knows what I can do. He knows what he will get. Also, Gil is very, he's another one of these people who's really good at top lines, melodies. Um, and I always felt that we worked together really well because he'd come up with these killer melodies and then I would be able to use them and set them, you know, in, 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 in good arrangements. Um, so, you know, quite good working methods going. And, um, and I think he wanted me on this album because... Um, uh, actually, same as with the Coldplay thing, although we had to do it quickly, I think I was only in Los Angeles for a week, and they were close to mixing, so we didn't have much time. It was very much about working with Gil and Dave, um, taking ideas and uh, visions that they'd got um, uh, uh, to come up with arrangements that, that worked that uh, were along the lines of what everyone was thinking about. Um, and that sounds really strange, doesn't it? Because you, you think when you call in an arranger that you just say, oh, go do your thing, Audrey. And sometimes I do get, oh, go do your thing, Audrey, and I love that. But, you know, most of the time people call a string arranger in to record because they've heard something in their heads. They don't just go, oh, I'm bored, what should we do today? Let's put strings on this track. They've got excited about something they've heard some frequency some idea some cloud of something i think we need to get strings on this i've got some thoughts about what they can do let's get someone in who does that so i've always worked really really close with the artists and the producers to try to harvest what's in their minds to get that out so that i'm i'm um i'm carrying out their vision uh it's their vision it's their track and that doesn't mean I'm not close to what I'm doing. Oh, gosh, I got very entangled <laughs> with my contribution. But it's a collaborative affair. And, and that was very much the case with the Foo Fighters record. So I went over to Los Angeles and like, I got I got a little room in Dave Grohl's studio, his studio complex. And, uh, and uh, he was just fabulous to work with. You know, just a lovely man. And full of creativity um, and you know full of fantastic ideas for the strings um, I, I, I have a memory of sitting watching him play the drums at one point I think he was may have just been practicing or trying something out but I thought that whole song is coming from his drumming he's hearing an entire song when he plays the drums he's arranging it on the drums as he plays that's what's happening. And that's where these string ideas are coming from. They're coming from hits and rhythms that are happening as he hits cymbals and snares and toms and stuff. Uh, so, yeah, it was great to actually, ah, oh, to be able to be there in the studio, to work alongside for a week with him, with Gil. And I could hear the mixes for the records going off in the room next to me. And then Dave would come in and he'd say, right, how's the pretender going? Can I hear some ideas? And they'd listen to the ideas that I'd got. They'd go, right, brilliant, that's excellent. So we'll call the quartet for tomorrow. They can record those and we'll mix that tomorrow night. It was, it was like a reduction line. But it was, yeah, it was great. It was, it was really good. It was one of the best ways to work, I think, like that. Although 
you know, in this past year in the pandemic and stuff, having to develop other ways of working. I've had an equally good creative time with an Australian artist called Adam Spark to make an album for strings and piano um, that he wrote and I arranged and then we recorded in the last days of freedom before the lockdown last year. And we've had to work on that collaboratively over the internet in the middle of the night between Australian and English time. And it's still been a really good creative experience, you know, so it, it, it is possible. And I'm delighted that he contacted me a couple of days ago to say he's mastered it and he's sending, sending me. It's out. Brilliant. I'm very happy about that. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I've been very lucky, Lara. Um, I've been lucky in that um, some really, really fantastic projects have come my way and I've uh, I found them really interesting and I've really enjoyed working on them. Um, and also because I've been doing it for such a long time, <laughs> that it looks like my CV is enormous. Well, it's actually, I've just been alive for a long time. <laughs> oh, That's great. No, thanks for these stories. Um, I'm just going to uh, change the subject because, of course, something else that you do, and I... It seems to me that's pretty uh, natural to sort of like fall into this um, as a cello player is working with uh, dance companies. So mm. I'm just interested to find out more about how different, if so, is it to like play in a theater compared to, you know, working in a studio or just playing a live gig? Like, yeah, what's that dimension like for you? That's strange, isn't it? Um, it isn't any different at all. I, I, I only said that it's strange, isn't it? Because, because on the on the face of it, we look at things and say, this is in this style, and this is in this style, and this is this kind of working, and this is this kind of working. And therefore, they must be different things. But, but actually, in the end, they're not. They're not different at all. Um, uh, um, they're the same actually they're completely the same uh, because it's still about performance and it's still about an experience it's still about creativity and it's still about communicating something ideas music so you can say that the idea is different because it's experimental music or it's mozart or it's rock or it's r&b or it's country and western music yeah those things are different but actually the process of being involved in them and experiencing them is the same, absolutely the same. I never perf perf I never record in the studio without it being a performance, and I don't mean that I'm putting on a show or looking for somebody to uh, uh, admire me. I mean that I'm trying to move my playing up to a level where it is possible to communicate something other than myself. And so that is true of arranging, it's true of playing with dance companies, it's it's true everywhere. Now for me this is like not a hard concept because what I am really interested in is contemporary music, now music. So rock and pop is now music and experimental music is now music improvising is now composers writing pieces to play that's now and they all contain ideas that are connected with the past but belong now and 
that's what interests me. So, um, yeah, it's one of the, I, I think you're referring to the 10 years I spent with the Mass Cunningham Dance Company, which is one of the most life-changing things ever. It absolutely changed me as a player, as a performer, as a musician. It asked me to address questions about, am I a cellist or am I a musician? It asked me to question my relationship to the composer, to the to um, to the to, to performance itself, actually, and it freed me um, uh, in a way that finding myself in rock and pop bands in the early eighties had also freed me. And, it, and what it most freed me from was a concept of that there is a right and there's a wrong way to go about this. <laughs> so to play experimental music and to find that everything that you bring is welcome <laughs> oh wow that just opened so many doors that is just a fantastic place to be filled with other people's trust and acceptance in which you learn trust and acceptance so that's what my doctorate was about um but to play with the Merce Cunningham Dance Company yes was an unbelievable thing um I was extremely lucky and uh, it, it was an amazing experience and and really being preoccupied with the task which was to provide sound for the dance was my only was the only thing that was asked of me so in in that way um it was actually very similar to every other area of my life <laughs> except that you know there's this amazing event going on around you with this astonishing choreography taking place on stage sets by Robert Rauschenberg and so on and so forth um, you're, you're sitting in the pit next to um, you know uh, giants of the experimental music scene and learning from them you know and trying not to be overawed by that I'm just very glad that you're there <laughs> I was extremely sad when it was over um, but decided that I could should continue looking into it through my doctorate, so I did. That's amazing. Um, something else that you've done also is you study your own record label, AR mm. Records. So, mm. why did you do it, and 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 why was it like a, a step that you wanted to take? <laughs> because. Uh... Um, because I thought it was about time I offered to take the financial hit instead of continually going to the record companies and asking them to do so. Because <laughs> basically that's what it's about. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's two questions there, aren't there? Um, and the first is, having made recordings, why do you want to share them? Why do you want other people to hear them? That's a philosophical question I'm sure somebody else is doing a thesis on right now. Um, does my music exist if I don't share it with anyone? I don't know. That's a big one. Um, I do know, though, that having recorded a composer's piece of music or somebody's song, or even if I've written a piece myself, I don't write very many pieces myself, but it's more particularly if I've recorded somebody else's work and I think, oh, but everybody has to hear this because this is just the most amazing piece and it would be really wrong of me to sit on this. So I need to share this. I need to communicate it. But then you go to the record companies and, you know, 
Um, Jeff Travis over the years has been very kind about the amount of demos I've played to him. <laughs> but in the end, this the, the sort of music that I am interested in um, is liked a huge amount by a very small amount of people. And so the record companies uh, would always say no. They'd always say, it's beautiful, Audrey, but we're not going to be able to sell it. So I thought, okay, the problem here is that somebody needs to take the financial hit. So I will take the financial hits. And some people call having your own label um, and putting your own records out vanity publishing, but um, which you could accuse me of. Um, it isn't vanity. It, it's more that every time I get a little bit of money for something, I like to sink it into some music that I think ought to be heard by composers that I think are fantastic and, and I'm really happy to, to, to make that happen, um, to share it basically. And also it's another liberating thing, isn't it? That it's very easy to start a label now. And, and what inspired me to do it was I would be teaching at ICMP, giving a lecture, and I'd say, oh, I wouldn't be able to remember names now, but I'd, I'd, I'd say, uh, Sue, what, what, what are you doing? Why are you on your phone? Why aren't you listening to my amazing lecture? Oh, I'm sorry, they'd say, Audrey. I'm just releasing my new single on iTunes. And I'd think, oh, okay, <laughs> clearly, clearly this is something I need to look into. Times have changed. Times have changed. I didn't know to do that. Mm, I better, better go and check that out. So yeah, and um, so I try my I try my best to do, pay my attention pay attention to my record label. Um, now that I've finished my doctorate, I'm picking it up again. We will have some releases coming out this year. Um, two releases by fabulous guitarist James Woodrow. Um, in some uh, compositions that he's uh, he's uh, been arranging, which are absolutely marvellous. There's um, a group of ex-ICMP students I run called, um, not run, uh, I, I play with, we're a collective actually. Uh, I, I might kind of try to keep us on the right path, just being a bit older, but uh, they've already got one record out on my label and uh, uh, we've got another two in the pipeline. You see, these have all been backed up waiting um, while I did my doctorate. Um, and um, yeah, and then I hope to be disseminating some of the uh, fabulous recorded work of Cage and uh, Wolf and Earl Brown and so on and experimental stuff that I've been doing as part of my doctor doctorate. So there's a lot of, lot of work coming up there. Mm. That's exciting. It is exciting, yeah. It is exciting. I hope that we can tie it in with some live concerts too, that we can get back out that's, and play. That's just what you need. Yes. It's it's like probably another philosophical question would be, would it be music if you didn't play it? <laughs> in front of, like people. <laughs> nice one, Laura. I like that. <laughs> I, 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 I think that the live dimension is just so, uh, for me personally, it's just so, it's it's part of it. There's no way it cannot be, but it's me, so. No, I think you're right. I don't think it's just you. The listener is, I'm going to start referring to authors I've read while doing my doctorate. About, Makes sense. Uh, about the, uh, well, Christian Wolf in, in, in particular, Clemens Gresse. Oh, oh, absolutely adamant, the listener is 
part of the performance. The entrainment, the energy between the listener and the musician create the performance. It's a really interesting question, isn't it? Can you feel that energy if your audience is on the other side of the screen? Um, yeah, that's... Uh... I mean, I don't have any answers, but it's it's a big one for sure, especially, um, you know, during these current times, uh, the lack of the smell of it and the sweat and the energy, that, that stuff, it's, uh, yeah, mm. for me, it's like necessary. But anyway, final question, because we've been talking yeah. for quite a lot. Yeah. You touched on teaching at ICMP, and of course, that's, that's the reason why we're here. Um, mm -hmm. I would like to know why why do you do it and what does it give you to Audrey as an artist, as a person, as a session player, as a why is it important to you? That's a good question, Laura. Um, I love it, actually. Didn't think I would, didn't mean to do it, fell into it. Mm, 2008 just ended up starting to do it and then got sort of bitten by this teaching bug um, and I think it's something to do with uh, it's a conversation I think I think it's something to do with a community of people who are together developing ideas and that it's not, it isn't actually, I don't ever think of it as teaching. I'm teaching and learning at the same time. Um, because what I'm doing is getting together with a group of people who know things I don't know. And I have experience of things they don't have experience of. And together, we're exploring them and developing ideas. And changing through that experience. Yeah, we have sometimes... You know, an idea as teachers that it's our duty to convey technical information to the student. And sometimes the student mistakenly thinks that learning is to do with um, acquiring a set of the right things to do that mean you can now do this as if it was a, something you could build, like a flat pack you got from Ikea. <laughs> I'm now an arranger because I got the flat pack. <laughs> but... Don't, I don't know if you'd agree with me. I don't, I don't think I've ever learned anything in my life that way. Um, I've always learned through experiences and conversations. So I like teaching because I feel that throughout my life I've had an, a lot of lucky experiences where people older than me have mentored me or um, shared their experience with me, um, taught me some things, given me different perspectives. And that's going all the way back to being a small child. And that actually, I think, I feel like it's my duty because up until I was, up until I came out of Guildhall, all of that education was free. I feel like I have an obligation to not, to, to share that, to pass it onwards. That sounds as though you think you're an amazing teacher and you have something you have to do. I don't mean that. Um, I just mean that um, that, uh, uh, that I feel very fortunate that that was given to me. And I enjoy the process of sharing that experience and those ideas and the techniques I have and also 
you know, if you if you can if you can help somebody with something through a technical thing, they're struggling with something, and you say, well, what about this? And it changes for them. Then you've done a good thing, you know. Um, uh, but but in that process of this conversation, you build a community uh, of ideas, and you learn from the fresh perspective of the young people that you are spending time with, that they don't. They stop you from sitting down with comfortable ideas and habits and perspectives and ask you to challenge yourself all the time. So this experience of having been teaching at ICMP at the same time as being a student doing a doctorate has been amazing, actually. When it's been a complete circle of, yeah, learning and teaching. And, uh, and I really, really enjoy it. And I'm so proud of my students when, at the end of the year, somebody who had no interest in composition, didn't think they could compose, no intention of writing anything at all and didn't see why they had to do the course, completes a string quartet and is so proud of themselves and says, I didn't want to do that, but I'm so glad I did then I think, hey, this is this is really good. And in the meantime, I realise that you can release things on iTunes, so I'm learning too. <laughs> no, it's great. I love it. And I particularly like teaching at ICMP because I think it's small enough at the moment that it's flexible, that it's, it's able to accommodate a wacky idea. You know, let's try this out, let's see if it works. And that's how we develop and innovate. Um, that's how we'll get out of this pandemic, isn't it? It's by thinking outside the box. What else can we do? So, yeah. Yeah, I'm hooked, I'm afraid. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky us. Well, it's a bit about that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time and for your answers. And uh, I would keep on going, but um, time is up. But thank you so much. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you for asking such great questions actually that's been a very philosophical hour and a half (laughs) you're right